alcohol and uh, oh things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Podcast, Paul and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 31st episode of Polcast. In this episode, you will hear about a Canadian from a Chinese family who got fascinated with Polish history and who feels really at home in Warsaw. About November the 1st being a very special day for Poles. And how a Polish passport helped a Canadian photographer get into places in Afghanistan that are inaccessible to others, and what came out of this. Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations, but updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Farmer's cheese is a delicious cheese used quite frequently in Polish cuisine, especially in baked goods such as the cheesecakes or the sweet crepes found in our cookbooks. During our visits to the many Polish heritage festivals, we're often asked what is farmer's cheese and where can it be purchased? The answers are simple. Farmer's cheese is a white cheese in Polish called twaruk with a very unique, mild, somewhat salty flavor. The texture of it reminds me of feta cheese because it's a pressed cheese. The curds are often squeezed into a brick or ball to remove the excess liquid. You can buy farmer's cheese in many upscale grocery stores, especially around the holidays and in most Eastern European delis. But more importantly, it can be made at home very easily. It's delicious and it can be a fun project to do with the kids. The ingredients include whole milk, buttermilk, a little white vinegar, and salt, which you slowly heat until the curds and the liquid whey begin to separate. Then you gather the curds into cheesecloth, let it drain, squeeze out all the liquid, Break apart the ball of dried curds and remold into a brick shape. The kids will love squeezing the cheesecloth. Doesn't that sound easy? Well, the process is a little more complex. Just make sure you follow all the right steps in the right order, but it really isn't hard. The cheese is lovely, but it's totally natural with no preservatives, so we keep it chilled and try to use it all within five days. Try it and let us know how you did. The full recipe for farmer's cheese and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the piece posted on October 31st, 14, and they make a great Christmas gift. Smacznego! He is now living in Paris. As he wrote on Facebook recently about his university residence room, I just realized how incredibly Polish it is, a Polish flag, the contents of his fridge. Nathan Tang calls himself Natanek, 
which is a Polish version of his name with a typically Polish diminutive ending. Born and raised in Toronto, having completed his MA in Polish history at the University of Toronto, he is now working on his doctorate in Paris. No, he doesn't have Polish roots. Natanek comes from a Chinese family who immigrated from Hong Kong. We reach him in Paris. How did you get into the Polish thing? So I grew up with uh, East Central Europeans, um, some mostly Romanians, uh, a couple of Hungarians, uh, a couple of Poles, and uh, I knew I always wanted to, uh, I guess, study their history because I was so fascinated by the history of my friends, uh, or at least the, the countries of origin where they came from. And uh, so I went to University of Toronto and um, immediately enrolled in history courses that were geared towards Europe, uh, Central Europe. And uh, uh, I think it was my first or second year, um, I opened this course with uh, Professor Frubel, uh, and the man fascinated me. Uh, and I immediately fell in love with the, the, I had this romantic idea of Poland and um, this, of this wondrous country who uh, was a crossroads of Europe, um, this bridge between the East and the West. And what was it about Professor Vrubel that fascinated you? He's a really good storyteller. And he's also someone who, who likes to mentor his students, uh, pushes them. As someone who's, who's pretty timid and shy, especially when I was much younger, he really encouraged people to, uh, to get involved with the, the material that we're studying. He made the history of Poland sort of personable and give us an idea of how things were like in, the, in, in Poland's history and um, sort of it was storytelling in a way and made it very interesting. So you've gone through the studies in Toronto, then you went to Poland. How long did you stay in Poland? I was living in Warsaw for two years, and I did a, a master's in international relations there, a private university called Collegium Civitas, uh, located in the, or the Palace of Culture, right at the heart of Warsaw. Mm -hmm. Did you study in Polish or in English? It was uh, largely in English, and uh, we did have some courses in the Polish language. How did the Poland you actually experienced and saw, how did that Poland compare to the Poland that you imagined when you were on our side of the Atlantic, which is in Canada? I think I was, I was pleasantly surprised. It was a little different, uh, but it still, it helped reinforce that, that sort of romantic idea of Poland being a sort of between worlds. I would say just observing, there's still a lot that is heavily influenced by its past, but yet uh, a city, for instance, like Warsaw is uh, also looking towards the future. Every single time I go back to Warsaw, it blows my mind how, how much it changes every time. And yet there are still elements of uh, its history there. What part of Polish history uh, grabbed you the most? I'm currently doing my thesis uh, on the, the British perceptions of Poland in the early 19th century. And so in a way, I'm sort of looking more on Polish-British relations and uh, Polish diaspora history in a way. Uh, but uh, the one that uh, the area of history that sort of of Polish history that really inspired me or that really interested me was at the end of the 18th century and the early 19th century. At the end of the 18th century, the the partitions of Poland, but you had um, sort of personalities like uh, Stanisław Augustus Poniatowski, who was trying to reform Poland, uh, partially successful, but then the the partitions happened and. Uh, it never really came to fruition. Uh, but then you had in the 19th century where Poland was, it was not politically independent, it was not sovereign, uh, 
but yet it was the the golden era of of Polish culture, of Polish language. Brilliant minds really advanced Polish culture and kept the 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 idea of Poland and the Polish nation alive. Even in Britain, you had you had a lot of uh, authors and and artists and politicians who were fascinated by Poland during this era because of its uh, this rich culture that was there. But you were born in Toronto. Born and raised in Toronto. From what family? Where are your roots? My parents are originally from Hong Kong. They were born and raised there. And then my grandparents, they were from an area, region, right outside Macau. Um, most of my family had uh, fled during the Second World War. Uh, my mother's side went back uh, for a while. And then the, um, uh, in 49, uh, the communists uh, finally took over uh, the province where my, my grandparents are from. And uh, they went back to Hong Kong. So how does your family react? What do they say? Well, my, my grandmother is uh, sort of the one who, who's not exactly happy of what what I'm doing. She goes, Chinese history is so rich. Why don't you study Chinese history? I don't know. Poland just fascinates me. And I find that there's still a lot to discover in a way. If, if somebody asked you, give me two or three things that are the most important or interesting for you that really draw you to that country, what would those be? I guess the the food on one hand, uh, if uh, you know someone likes potatoes, uh, <laughs> this is this is the country to go to. Uh, they're they come in all wonderful shapes and sizes and forms and flavors. Yeah, Polish cuisine has has gone a long way. Uh, there's a lot of fusion as well. Um, the music scene is very interesting in Poland. You have things like rap and reggae and R and B just culture in general Polish uh, culture especially in Warsaw like a cosmopolitan city like Warsaw you can find a lot of uh, theater uh, opera movies are a big thing um, there's some great uh, films that have come out of Poland so if you were to compare those three countries where you've lived Poland Canada and and France there's a lot more space in Canada um, and so everything seems um, a little more daunting, a little bigger. I think there's more of a car, a car culture in Canada. Uh, it seemingly we drive everywhere uh, to get somewhere, and uh, definitely in Toronto. Let's speak of France first, uh, where every, we walk everywhere, we take the transport everywhere. Uh, things are very dense. Um, there's a lot of people. Uh, density is very high. And in comparison to Canada, there's actually quite a lot of good food here in France. And then Poland is sort of that halfway between the two, uh, playing that, that, that familiar role of the, the, the bridge between uh, two different cultures or two different uh, places. Um, and po in Poland, I did find there was a lot of cars, and yet you can still walk everywhere, uh, you still take the transport everywhere. When you were in Poland, did you feel like an outsider or did you feel like part of that society because of your intimate knowledge of Poland and because of the knowledge of the language? Most of the time, I did feel like a local. People are very uh, warm and, and welcoming. And, and I did feel like I was at home in Warsaw. So what are your plans? Like when you finish your PhD in Polish history, what are you going to do? I think my, my long-term goal is to teach. Maybe in Canada, if I'm lucky, uh, maybe in France, uh, where I'm getting my doctorate. Uh, I think my ultimate goal is to, to go back to Poland. Um, I just, my heart is still, is still in Warsaw. Warsaw still feels like home to me, more so than, than Toronto or even Paris.
The professor Natanek referred to as his inspiration is Professor Piotr Wrubel, who holds the Konstanty Rayner Chair of Polish History at the University of Toronto. We hope to introduce him to our podcast listeners in the near future. One thing which every foreigner who has lived in Poland mentions as really unique is the Polish tradition of visiting the graves of their loved ones at Polish cemeteries on November the 1st. In the evenings, Polish cemeteries are lit up with hundreds of thousands of candles, looking absolutely magical. Old Polish cemeteries look like the famous Paris Père Lachaise. The oldest Warsaw Cemetery is Powązki, established in 1792. It's a truly incredible place, full of exquisite tombstones, sculptures and statues often created by the best artists. It's a miracle that so many of them survived World War II. Imagine this almost park-like places filled with glowing lights, with flowers, the smells of autumn leaves and candles. Those are the memories that every Paul has from his or her childhood days. All Saints Day, wszystkich świętych, November the 1st, has been designated by the Roman Catholic Church as the day to pray for the saints of the church. All Souls Day, called Zaduszki, November the 2nd, is a day of prayer for all those who have died. These are extremely important days for Poles. November the 1st is a national holiday and one of the busiest days for traveling. People travel long distances to visit their family graves. On November the 1st, while visiting their family graves, many people also visit the graves of famous Poles like Marshal Józef Piłsudski and of the soldiers killed in the wars and the uprisings of the past. They take their kids with them and the tradition becomes a history lesson that stays with you forever. I had a great pleasure last summer to host a Toronto launch of Gabriela Mai's award-winning photo book, Almond Garden. Gabriela grew up in Poland, Germany, and Canada. Her photography and writing has been published by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vice, National Geographic, Esquire magazine, and featured on CNN, BBC, and Frontline. She has worked as a photographer for Frontline, Getty Images, Bloomsburg News, and has covered stories in Iran, Qatar, Kazakhstan, Sri Lanka, and Syria, among others. Her book, Almond Garden, showing images and telling stories of women prisoners incarcerated in Afghanistan, received glowing reviews all around the world. It was listed in Time magazine as one of the best photo books of the year and featured on the BBC, CNN, in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vice, Huffington Post, Le Figaro, and on NPR, among others. To talk about this unique five-year project, we reach Gabriela Mai in Dubai. You have worked so much in Asia. How did you get into this continent, and why? 
I began traveling to the Gulf, Dubai and in surrounding areas in 2007. I began coming here for some work and because my partner at the time, now my husband, was living here. And then once I started to spend more time in Dubai, I began to do assignment work in Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was the first Central Asian country that I began visiting and working in. And that expanded to Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and uh, Kyrgyzstan. I fell in love with, uh, with Central Asia and that, that particular region of the world, the culture, cultures, the people, the history. And uh, of course, in Afghanistan, most specifically, the contrast and the comparison between this very rich place historically and, of course, all of the conflict and um, the kind of ever-changing landscape of uh, the country at present. Of course, being there, you could photograph landscapes, you could photograph people, but you decided to do something that nobody had ever done before, which is to get into places that are totally isolated, which is women's prison. How did that mm. happen? The first time I visited a woman's prison in Afghanistan, I was on an assignment for an unrelated story. And while I was there, because I'm independent, I work freelance, I'm in touch with a lot of different uh, editors and uh, news agencies, magazines. I pitch stories while, while as I go. Uh, in this case, what happened, I was in Afghanistan, I was in Kabul, and an editor of mine that I worked with uh, at a news agency, he got in touch and he said, you know, there are all of these stories in the international news media about women that are being incarcerated uh, for something known as moral crimes, and in many cases, they're being imprisoned with their kids. Do you think you could find out if it would be possible to photograph the story for us? You know, at that point, I'd never been to a prison at all. So it was a daunting assignment, but it took about a it was about 10 days that I got the paperwork together uh, as a member of the press and I visited Barambag, which is the women's facility in Kabul. From there, the project just kind of unraveled. I, I Every time I was in Afghanistan for work, I would make a point to visit that prison. So I began visiting that prison regularly and then uh, I began to visit other facilities in the country, collecting the stories of the women that I was meeting there and kind of accumulating a sort of record of their experiences, both as women in Afghan society previous to their arrest and then their, a record of their experiences within the justice system and the, the prison system in Afghanistan. The book has um, portraits and stories from a hundred women that are in different facilities, eight different facilities from around the country and the name of the book Almond Garden comes from the name of the first prison I visited which is Barambag which in the Dar language translates to Almond Garden so this was the, the first prison I visited and you know before I went in I spent the evening just looking it up online and trying to learn you know as much as I could about the place and that came up right away that you know the name was was Almond Garden and that just struck me as such an unlikely you know moniker for for what that facility is associated with, uh, you know, what, what it represents in so many people's lives. And, you know, it's just, just, it was, a, it was a great contrast between this, you know, this beautiful kind of image of this lush garden where almonds grow. So what did you find? How did the reality compare to your expectations? The, the facilities, so the building, you know, the rooms, the, the, the washroom facilities, all of that were surprising to me in that they were much better than I expected. They're, most of these women's prison facilities are new, so they were built um, after 2001 with foreign aid. So, you know, the government uh, from Italy has put funding towards this. The government of Finland has put funding towards this. Of course, the American government. So a lot of these facilities are, they're, they're, they're new. I mean, they're very, they're very basic and rudimentary, but they're, they're completely, you know, up to par in terms of having clean running water and, and uh, electricity and that sort of thing. So 
a lot of the women who are in these prisons personalize their spaces. So they have family that visits and they'll bring them some kind of material to make a curtain out of over their bunk bed. Or, you know, they have posters on a wall or, or they have taped up photographs of their family members. So there's a lot of color and there's a lot of uh, individual individual physical spaces that, that are reminiscent of home and comfortable space that they can be in. So that was also surprising to me. It definitely wasn't the stark kind of, you know, concrete and bars that, that most people think of when they think of a prison cell. But what was shocking to me kind of on the other end was the fact that most of these women were arrested for something known as moral crimes and then incarcerated. So there was most of the, the population of this prison um, are women who are, who are victims that have been transformed through this legal system into criminals, into incarcerated women. So that, that part of it was something that was very kind of shocking to me and, and loud and clear from, from the very first visit that I was in prison. And that was ultimately what I was interested in. How come you were actually allowed to do this? Because from the point of view of the prison authorities and everybody who is in charge, uh, letting you in was in a way letting you see what they probably didn't want you to see. My experience was interesting because the first visit that I ever made, I made under uh, the the Ministry of Justice. So the Ministry of Justice in Afghanistan at that point was administering all the prisons. You had to put in a whole application and go through a bunch of meetings and, and file tons of paperwork, but they were giving permission to members of the foreign press to come in, uh, you know, for very limited amounts of time. But shortly after this first visit, there was a prison break in the south of Afghanistan in Kandahar where over 500 of these Taliban fighters escaped. And the Ministry of Justice you know, was humiliated by this and the government was displeased. So they moved the administration to the Ministry of Interior. And after this, it became very, very difficult to gain access. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, I was, I was hooked on the project from the very beginning, so, so I made it work. But so every time I was let into one of these prisons, there was a different process that I went through to establish that access. So sometimes it would be through official channels that I would get to through uh, pretty, pretty time-consuming uh, networking, you know. So I would get in touch with everybody I knew, and then they would, somebody would put me in touch with somebody else, and, and that kind of human chain of communication would eventually get me to somebody who could um, connect me with a prison warden, with a provincial governor, with uh, somebody in a position of power to uh, to officially uh, let me in. So those were official ways. And then the, the kind of the less official ways had to do with basically just spending spending time with, you know, somebody who was from kind of like a higher up level of the guards at a prison, working on, on convincing them that, you know, the, I was working on this report. I was interested in, you know, the facilities. I was, I was uh, interested in seeing what the, the, these new buildings looked like in some cases. So kind of presenting it in a way that it wasn't that it was, you know, it was a lie, but it was it was skewed towards kind of an idea that I was going to go into these prisons to sort of see how things were being done well, let's say. I, I was very committed to the project. I was willing to do a lot, you know, to, to kind of see it through and to, to get as many of these women's voices uh, out from behind the prison walls. So it was time. It was time. It took five years to, to produce this book. I mean, I was definitely denied the access uh, many, many more times than I was um, granted it. So, And the Polish passport helped you, apparently. Yes. I realized that at an early stage in this process that a lot of these officials who are working with the military or with the military connected to the prison system, so Afghan um, officials, 
have a kind of affinity for Poland. They have an affinity for Poland uh, on account of uh, Poland and Afghanistan's shared historical relationship uh, with Russia. So there was uh, there was a sense that traveling and working with a Polish passport, I was I was welcomed in a way that I don't think I would have been if I if I was uh, traveling only on my Canadian passport. Oh, definitely not American, right? And absolutely not American. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Although I will tell you that after spending the amount of time that I did in Afghanistan, that's from from certain perspectives it doesn't really matter if you're american or if you're canadian or if you're belgian or if you know if you are a part of the isaf forces that are in the country you are from many perspectives a member of the enemy you know of the invading uh, group that that is coming and waging war in your country so so definitely american heads up that group but i think that that the, the lines sort of get blurred a little bit uh, from certain perspectives as to you know how important it is if it's canadian or american Having learned how Gabriela got access to the inaccessible women's prisons in Afghanistan and how she worked on the book, you will now have to wait until next week, when in episode 32 we will hear what exactly is going on in those prisons and what role her book Almond Garden has had in bringing a change. We normally associate songs with fun and entertainment, but can singing songs be forbidden? Well, at some point in Polish history, that was the case. During World War II in Poland under German occupation, an expression of Polish patriotism was strictly forbidden, including playing Chopin's music. But, as with most restrictions, the result was just the opposite. Singing simple, well-known songs in their new version became an expression of resistance against the German occupation. New lyrics were written to old popular songs, lyrics that were poking fun at the seemingly unstoppable German war machine rolling over the entire Europe. Humor helped a lot in fighting with the Nazis. Everybody sang the song about stupid Hitler, ridiculous German regulations, and of course about the eventual victory. And The Forbidden Songs was the title and the subject of the very first feature film produced in Poland after the six years of World War II. The film premiere took place in January 1947 in the newly reopened Palladium Cinema in Warsaw. The film was a hit with around 11 million viewers in the first three years, twice the average film attendance in post-war Poland. The actors became the most popular movie stars admired and loved by the whole Poland. And when communists introduced martial law in 1981, the forbidden songs re-emerged with lyrics updated once again, this time making fun of the communist regime. You've been listening to the 31st episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska 
and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals, and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We are always curious about your reactions, comments, and suggestions. Also ideas for new stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. And we leave you today with one of the forbidden songs we were just talking about. Thank you for listening to Polkast. Ciśle nam nie dają żyć, wszak kultura nie zabrania robić takie polowania. Siekiera motyka, piłka, sianka, w nocy na rodzinie łapanka, siekiera motyka, piłka, gruś, masz góra na imię puść. Oh, Leon. <laughs> <laughs>